first reading this morning is um, on page 1004 of the Church Bibles, Mark chapter 3, page 1004 of the Church Bibles. Mark chapter 3, starting at verse 1. Another time, he, Jesus, went into the synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with a shriveled hand, Stand up in front of everyone. Then Jesus asked them, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to, eat, to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they remained silent. He looked round at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake, and a large crowd from Galilee followed him. When they heard all he was doing, many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, and the regions across the Jordan and around Tyre and Sidon. Because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him to keep the people from crowding him. For he healed many, so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. Whenever the evil spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. But he gave them strict orders not to tell who he was. This is the word of the Lord. And then just continuing to the end of the, of the chapter, Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed twelve, designating them apostles, that they might be with him, and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. These are the twelve he appointed, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. To them he gave the name Boanerges, which means sons of thunder, Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said he's out of his mind. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, He is possessed by Beelzebub, by the prince of demons he is driving out demons. So Jesus called them and spoke to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man, then he can rob his house. I tell you the truth, all the sins and blasphemies of men will be forgiven them. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. He is guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying he has an evil spirit. 
Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, Your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and my brothers, he asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. A prayer as we stand. My gracious Master and my God, assist me now as I preach to proclaim and spread through all the earth abroad the honours of thy name. For Jesus' name's sake we pray it. Amen. Please do be seated. And uh, if you're a note taker, in fact, even if you're not, you may find it helpful to have uh, the little headings in front of you as we, as we go on. And do turn back to Mark chapter 3. It's the uh, last in this little s- series looking at Mark's gospel. We'll return to it in due course, but we're looking at Mark chapter 3, page 1004, if you've lost it. Well, poor old Neville Chamberlain. British Prime Minister, 1937 to 1940. I didn't know him personally. You know, I'm sure he wasn't all bad. The thing is, he did just make one particular error, didn't he, as every GCSE history student will know, and it happens to have been quite a significant one. Having met Adolf Hitler in Munich, September 1938, he came back pronouncing, clutching that bit of paper off the plane, peace, peace in our time. Only history tells us that it really wasn't, was it? It was the eve of one of the bloodiest world wars history has ever seen. It is a serious thing to think that one is at peace when one is really at war. And Mark's gospel here is, in a sense, first century war journalism because it documents for us a quickly escalating conflict. At the start of the gospel, Jesus is able to come and go as he pleases, to go into synagogues, and no one's stopping him. But by the time Mark chapter 3 rolls around, things have escalated. Do you remember verse 6 as it was read by Katie? He's now got a price on his head. People are planning his death. And then in verse 7 we're told he has to withdraw It's a quickly escalating conflict. And who are the protagonists in this particular war? Well, the teachers of the law, the Pharisees, they don't get a good press. They're the sort of foot soldiers, I suppose, in this war against Christ. But if we dig a little deeper, we find that at headquarters, the commanding officers are of quite a different order. In fact, this is not a battle between flesh and blood, Christ on the one hand, the Pharisees on the other. It's a battle between heaven and hell. It's a battle between good and evil. It's a battle between Jesus Christ and Satan. That is why all the way through Mark's gospel, Jesus' ministry is marked out by exorcisms. Have you noticed that as you've read through? He keeps on exorcising demons. He keeps on winning little victories in this big battle between heaven and hell. And so the battle remains in 21st century London today. So can I ask you, as one may have asked Neville Chamberlain, 
do you realize that there's a war on? And do we realize that we are in the war zone? Because if we think we're at peace when we're at war, well, that really is quite a significant error to make. Now, I think there are three implications of being in a spiritual war zone for us this morning. And the first is this. Discard agnosticism. Discard agnosticism from verses 1 to 12. I wonder if you noticed in our passage that if we were looking for people who are agnostic about Jesus, who have yet to make their mind up about him, we really couldn't find any of them in chapter 3. Nor could we find really any agnostics in any of the Gospels, I don't think. People fall in this passage into one of two very clear-cut groups. We might call the first group the haters, and we find them in verses 1 to 6. Now, this is the Pharisees. They arrive, don't they, looking to accuse Jesus in verse uh, 2, and, and they leave in verse 6 looking to kill Jesus. That is hate in my book. And did you notice the depth of their hate for the Lord Jesus Christ? It's, it's quite mystifying in many ways. Have a look at uh, verse 4, if you would. Then Jesus asked them, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? Now, here are people who are excellent orators, great debaters, the brains of the day. Here are people who are very good at having all the answers and who love to have all the answers. Jesus asks them a very, very simple question. Did you notice their erudite response? Well, they remain silent. Wow, that's a depth of hate for Jesus, isn't it? Such that they prefer to lose an argument than to drop their hate for Jesus. Have a look at verse 6. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. Now, this might not leap off the page immediately, but the Pharisees and the Herodians were not friends of one another. You know, it's like Brexit and Bromain. I mean, they, they wouldn't have chatted amicably. They hated one another. And yet here, their shared hate for Jesus Christ is sufficient that they go into partnership with one another. Do you see the depth of their hate for Jesus? They're not agnostic about him. They hate him in verses 1 to 6. But then do you notice the second group in verses 7 to 12? Have a look down at, at this large crowd. Charles read this section out at the beginning. A large crowd from Galilee, that is in the west, followed Jesus. Uh, when they heard about all he was doing, many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, and Idumea, that is from the south, and the regions across the Jordan, that's from the east, and around Tyre and Sidon, that's the north. Do you see what the gospel writer Mark is saying to us? He's, he's saying they're coming from everywhere. He's picking out each of the four points of the compass and saying, yeah, the crowds came from there too. It's his way in literary terms of saying the world was coming to Jesus Christ. And in contrast to the haters, here are the hopers. They hope in Jesus such that they're willing to commute significant distances. And they come to be healed. They come with their migraines and with their MS. They come with their glandular fever and with their glaucomas. They come with their crutches and with their cancer to be fixed Jesus is their hope. 
And again, they are not agnostic about Jesus. No, they're really in the fan club. They hope in him. He is their hope. He is their king against the brokenness of the world they find themselves in. He's their king fighting against the forces of darkness. They had chosen their side. Now, how about us? When one is caught in a war, agnosticism about which side one is going to back is not really a luxury we have. I take that for granted. I've never been caught in a war myself. I've sometimes been taken aback by the strength of feeling my grandparents have when they speak about the Second World War. And I think maybe that strength of feeling is something that my generation may never understand unless, God forbid, we are caught in such a conflict ourselves. But let me tell you that my grandparents were not agnostic about Nazi Germany, nor were they agnostic about the Allies. They had chosen their side, and they felt that very strongly. They denied agnosticism. That's what war does to you. You choose your side. And so it is for us today. There is a spiritual war on, and we cannot afford to be agnostic about which side to pick. It's funny, isn't it? Agnosticism is very much in vogue today. It's seen as arrogant, isn't it, to know something for certain, especially perhaps in the area of faith. It's much more laudable to celebrate mysticism, um, much more laudable to celebrate the journey rather than the destination, the question rather than the answer. Uh, If there's someone we are quite worried about, it's the convinced believer, isn't it? We're worried that there'll be a radical, dogmatic, possibly a terrorist as well. No, what we want in the 21st century is the the open-minded agnostic. That's much more cuddly and soft, isn't it? But verses 1 to 12 remind us that there are no agnostics in the Gospels. Why? I think it's because Jesus is in the Gospels, and where Jesus goes, agnosticism disappears. He has this habit of splitting a crowd down the middle. He polarizes people. He's controversial. And so it is for us that if we're agnostic about Jesus, I think we must conclude that we haven't really met him. As G.K. Chesterton reminds us, I love this quotation, merely having an open mind is nothing. The object of opening the mind, as of opening the mouth, is to shut it again on something solid. Don't you like that? There's a war on. We need to discard agnosticism. We need to choose a side. Are we for Christ? But of course, the question remains which side we may choose. And so we come to my second heading, deduce the ascendancy. We need to deduce the ascendancy from verses 22 to 30. Verse 22, the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, Jesus is possessed by Beelzebul. By the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. Now, Jesus has been waging his war on the powers of darkness for some time now. Enough time for word to reach Lambeth Palace, Jerusalem, of this preacher, this healer, this miracle man, Jesus Christ. And so a high-powered delegation are sent. Notice that they come down from Jerusalem. That's filled with meaning. We're to imagine them in their flowing robes, clutching their Oxbridge theological degrees and uh, in their gowns, 
These are the um, QC silks of the theological world. They have all the answers, and they want to see who this upstart is. They come down, much as we come down from London, whether we go north or south. They come down. And they're desperate to explain away Jesus' power. And they think a good way to do that is going to put, be put a slur on his character to throw some theological mud at him. That's a good idea, isn't it? What is more muddy, theologically speaking, than Satan? And so they say, well, maybe he's having such success exercising the demons because he's working for the prince of demons. How about that, Jesus? But Jesus gives them a lesson on kingdom security straight out of Sandhurst officer training week one. It's very basic stuff, isn't it? Have a look at the end of verse 23. How can Satan drive out Satan? Let me tell you, Jesus says, if a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In other words, Jesus is saying, oh, come, come. Come now. Guess again. Have another guess. I can't be working for Satan, can I? I'm working against Satan. Have another guess. Who, who do you think I might be? And then verse 27, he puts them out of their misery. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. This is the fight. We're to imagine that a very strong man has taken hostages in Belgravia. And they're under lock and key. They cannot get out. Until the next week, we see them walking down Elizabeth Street, free as you like. What's the mark of freedom in Belgravia? It's holding a cup of Tom Tom takeaway coffee. And they're walking free and enjoying every sip. Now, what do we conclude? Well, don't we conclude that there's been an even stronger man who has come and tied up that strong man and has released the captives to freedom and Tom Tom coffee? Now, we're not told, but as Jesus told this one-sentence parable, don't you imagine that he maybe quietly gesticulated at the people he'd healed and exercised, pointed to the men and the women and the children whom he'd healed from their MS and their migraines and their cancer and their crutches, and he's saying, can't you see that I freed them? I'm not working for Satan, I'm working as God. This is not the work of hell, this is the work of heaven. You see, when we're picking sides... It's important to deduce who is in the ascendancy. In June 1940, Mussolini was absolutely convinced that German victory was assured and quickly. And so he pronounced war on the Allies astonishingly, I hadn't realized this, astonishingly expecting maybe to incur casualties in the thousands for the Italians. He thought war's end was very close and Nazi victory was assured. And of course, for a while, he looked to be dead right. Hitler's invasion of Poland, Blitzkrieg across Belgium and Holland and France, uh, the Dunkirk evacuations, it looked like a foregone conclusion. That is until the USA joined the war in 1941, after which point, generally speaking, the tide turned against Germany. 
There were victories for the Allies, huge victories in Stalingrad and El Alamein and in North Africa. And then the Italian powers seeing the true ascendancy, not of the Nazi party, but of the Allies, well, they quietly switched sides. They deposed Mussolini and signed an armistice treaty with the Allies just before the Allies invaded Italy. They switched sides, and wisely so, because they saw the Allies were in the ascendancy. So when you're picking sides, it is important to deduce who's on the up, who's in the ascendancy. And if I can put this reverently, where eternity is concerned for us, one really, really doesn't want to be backing the wrong horse, if I can put that reverently. Who's in the ascendancy? Who can we trust will win at the end of the day? Who, if I can put it this way, is the stronger man, the strongest man? Well, of course, there are many different schools of thought. Liberal humanists tend to think that humanity will win. They point to the inexorable progress of the human race over the millennia, and, we, and they say, humans, we're the answer. We're the stronger man. We will have victory over sickness and death one day. Really? I mean, I know life expectancy has grown, I know medical science has made huge leaps forward, but other things have progressed as well, more unsavory things. War has progressed. Economic inequality has also progressed. Think back to the 2011 London riots. Think back to the increased racism in the light of the EU referendum result. And those things should give us pause for thought before we celebrate humanity as the answer and the strongest man. What about another option? What about liberal capitalism? Uh, liberal capitalists tend to trust market forces, the inexorable growth of capital, and so lifestyle improves, standard of living. But surely the, the, the crash of 2008 is, is too close for comfort to hold that position, to say that alone is the answer. Capital markets aren't in the ascendancy. They're far too wobbly for that, as this last week showed us. And of course, cynical hedonists see all of that and understand it, and they say, well, there's no point living for those things. I'm just going to live for pleasure in the moment. But of course, that can't last. Who is in the ascendancy? Who will win? Who's the stronger man? And then we have the Lord Jesus Christ, he looks like he'll lose, doesn't he? Let's be honest. I know he healed, I know he won arguments in Mark chapter 3, but even here he's a marked man. People are planning his death. Alliances are building against him. It's a bit like Blitzkrieg, isn't it, and Dunkirk. It looks like he's losing, losing, losing. Who's in the ascendancy? Not Jesus. And then at last, of course, he does die. That's never a positive move if you're looking to be in the ascendancy. But here's the thing, his death is his victory. At that very moment, he, heaven's strongest man, volunteered to be tied up by Satan in Satan's house so that he could free us, Satan's hostages, so we could walk free. So that, verse 28, we could be forgiven and released. And if we doubt that, which I do sometimes, 
if we doubt that, if we feel that agnosticism just creeping in again, well, then he walked free from the grave three days later, physically, historically, and really, to absolutely convince us he is, if you're looking for the stronger man, he is your man. He will win. And incidentally, because he's in the ascendancy, that means we've just got to sign an armistice treaty with him. If we don't, we'll be invaded. That's what those difficult, unsettling verses 29 to 30 are about. Have a look down at those. I think it's very important we understand what they do mean and what they don't mean. Verses 29 to 30. I'll read them again. Truly, I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter. Worth pausing on that. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? Every sin, every slander they utter. Jesus Christ is the one who offers free and full forgiveness. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. Now, we need to listen carefully here. Many a Christian has wrongly lost assurance over a misunderstanding of these verses here. Jesus is speaking to the teachers of the law at this point, and he's issuing them a final ultimatum, a final warning. He's saying, you have to sign the armistice with me. I'm your man. You have to receive my forgiveness. And here's the thing that they've done, the sin they've committed. They know who Jesus is. They've seen all the evidence that he is the Son of God. Even the demons were telling them that out loud a few verses earlier. They've seen the evidence. And yet flying in the face of that evidence that he's the Son of God, they repeatedly say, no, you're not. They see Jesus as God and they kill Jesus as God. And in fact, they go so far as to say that the role of the Holy Spirit working through Jesus is the work of Satan. They call white black. Do you see? Do you see what they've done? And they do that persistently. That is the eternal sin. Why? Well, simply because if we reject Christ, there's nobody else to sign the armistice with. For he is the only stronger man who died for us. To reject Christ is to reject heaven. There's no second stronger man. There's no second option. Do we see? So if in the back of our mind we're thinking back some years and we're saying, how could I ever be forgiven for saying this? How could I ever be forgiven for not doing this or doing this? And that plagues us as we come and take communion here at church or or we read our Bible. Can I say... There's no sin which he cannot forgive. You're absolutely forgiven in Christ. The only eternal sin is when we look at Christ and we say, you're not the son of God. I'm not coming to you for forgiveness. In fact, your work is the work of Satan. So friends, there's a war on. Discard agnosticism. Deduce the ascendancy. And finally, declare allegiance. Declare allegiance from verses 13 to 30. Now, Mark is a very careful author, and he structures his gospel with real literary finesse. And I've been scratching my head over this bit of the passage most of the week, and I'm quite excited. What he's doing here is beautiful. 
I've laid out on the notice sheet there the structure of these verses, which I hope will help visually for us. And if you look at it, you'll see that he's structured it with a sort of symmetrical mirroring structure to make a point. Do you see, he's talking about followers in verses 13 to 19 and 32 to 35. They're all about his apostles and his followers. Verse 21, verse 31 are all to do with Jesus' blood family. And then the central section, as we've just seen, is all to do with conflict, that battle between the teachers of the law and Jesus. And what is Mark saying to us here? Well, I think he's telling us that war produces new allegiances for us. And I'm really excited about this as we close. Mark does that by putting two types of allegiance next to one another. The first type is the allegiance of just following. Following. You'll see that from verses 13 to 19. Jesus calls his first apostles to him, and he commissions them as people to work on his behalf and to speak on his behalf. They become his followers. Now, of course, there are no longer any apostles today, but Jesus Christ today is still calling his followers to him, isn't he? And it's one of my foremost joys over the last three years to see new followers join the fold as the gospel's been proclaimed as people come on alpha and big questions and they've become followers of Jesus. It's it's a kind of allegiance to Jesus. That's the first type. It's the allegiance of following. Now do you see the second type of allegiance as well in verse 21? The second type of allegiance is that of the family. It's a much more intimate type of allegiance. It's the closest bond one can ever share with another human being to say, your family, your family. So there they are, the two types, following and then family. And now look at what Mark does to redefine one of them in verses 31 to 34. This is where he pulls the rabbit out of the hat. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Your mother and brothers are looking outside for you, Jesus, Who are my mother and my brothers? Jesus asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and my sister and my mother. Do you see what Mark's doing? Do you see the deftness with which he's teaching us? He's saying that in a time of war, new allegiances must be formed. We must decide whom to follow. And then it's as if he reads my mind, and I dare say your mind, and he says, oh no, don't worry, following Jesus is not an impersonal thing, it's not a lonely transactional thing, it's not like getting a new job or a new hobby on a Sunday, it's not lonely, you won't be a follower on your own, don't worry. No, when we begin to follow Jesus, we join Jesus' family. We join the family of the church. It is something so intimate that it supersedes even the nuclear family in its closeness. That's what Mark is telling us. And I think what I want to say now as I close, as I preach my final paragraph and as Katie and I prepare to go, is thank you. Thank you to so many of you for being family to us. It is often an deeply been true for us that as we've sought to follow the Lord Jesus Christ in this big city, which frankly doesn't seek to follow Christ in its majority, 
As we have sought to follow Christ, we have found in you more than colleagues, more than comrades, but we found in many of you family. And I don't say that with any hint of exaggeration in my voice. And that is what Mark is saying is precisely what should have been our experience. And we want to thank you for being our family as we've sought to follow Christ together. Now, we hate goodbyes. I always say a good goodbye uh, is a quick goodbye. So uh, excuse us if we give you a quick hug and move off before we start crying. And I'm, I'm sure we'll keep in touch. But the reality for us is, as we go, that we're in the same family as you. And that is something which is deeply true because we share as our brother, the Lord Jesus Christ, the stronger man, the one who will surely win the spiritual battle. And we share as our heavenly father, the one who writes every one of our days for us. So as we go, don't worry about us. We're in his good fatherly care and we'll be praying for you as we go as well. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, I thank you for my mothers and brothers and sisters and fathers in this building here this morning. And we thank you because you're the one who made us family, because you're the one who called us to follow you. We thank you that in you we find the stronger man. We find the one who will surely win the victory. We find the one who has actually defeated Satan on the cross. And it's our prayer for this next week that you'd help us to discard agnosticism, help us to be all in for you, help us to hope in you. We pray that we would see your ascendancy and declare our allegiance to you, whatever this week, this year, this next season may hold. And we pray it for your glory. Amen.